On this special episode of Thinking Inside the Box, prepare to be grabbed by the coolies. Hello, everybody. I'm Excalibur. And I'm your co-host off mic. <laughs> co-host. I don't know why that came out like weird. Ugh. And I'm your co-host, Soft Mike. All right. This episode is an exciting episode. This is not only number 13, but ironically, our Halloween special featuring... Oh, yes. Grabbed by the Ghoulies. Oh, yeah. Uh, definitely a title that, to me at least, and my siblings, is one that holds a special place in our childhood. I understand this is your first experience with this one, though. Yes, uh, my first experience with this game, but definitely something that uh, I can see being a special place in a lot of people's hearts. Absolutely. This still carries mostly all of Rare's classic charm and the great storytelling and artwork that we know and love from prior games in the series that they've created. It's like, I honestly believe more than likely one of rares if not rares last great game at least so far but yeah this is definitely a beautifully designed game we have a lot to dive in you guys will enjoy what we have to discuss absolutely i would also like to add before we get into this one this game is actually a listener request by one of our patreon members jay and so jay uh, was... if you're out there this is one's for you bud absolutely jay we appreciate your suggestion very much it was actually a surprising one at that this was the game that they wanted reviewed uh it was perfect timing too because i knew a halloween special was potentially something that was coming up and uh it couldn't have worked out any better so this is one thing we love about our community and our members is uh you never know what they're going to throw at you. It's part enjoyment and part mystery. And this definitely pure enjoyment for at least me. And uh, I think it turned out to be for you as well. Oh, yes. A very interesting game. All right. Well, without further ado, let's jump right into this title. All right. Okay. Today's game, Grabbed by the Ghoulies, is developed by Rare and published by Microsoft Game Studios. It is a single-player game with 480p resolution and Dolby 5.1 surround. It is rated E for violence. Its genre is Action Beat'em Up. Released the 21st of October 2003, it was an exclusive. The overview is, Do you dare to step into a haunted house full of dancing zombies, cursed mummies, and boxing skeletons? Grabbed by the Ghoulies tests your courage as you play as Cooper, a kid on a mission to rescue his kidnapped girlfriend. She's trapped somewhere in the ominous, Ghoulhaven Hall, which is rife with monsters, traps, and scares. But don't worry, you'll have more than 100 household objects, including chairs, pool cues, and fire extinguishers to bash the ghoulies with. But be careful, if you fail to get through Ghoulhaven Hall, you'll become a prisoner there forever. What you got, Soft Mike? All right, Excalibur, we have... Ghoulies have taken his girlfriend. The only way Cooper is going to get her back is by entering the spooky Ghoulhaven Hall. Each room in the building sets a new challenge, and to move on to the next mission, you must complete the task at hand, whether that be defeating the ghosts and other creatures or solving a puzzle. But there's a catch. As within each room, there are certain rules that must be followed. Otherwise, the Grim Reaper will appear and attempt to take our hero to certain doom. Power-ups are available to aid Cooper, such as one-hit kills and invisibility. 
while anti-power-ups will make things harder for you. Items laying around can be used to fight the monsters. Well, that's all I have on my end for the description. All right, so now we're going to be jumping into our publisher and developer. All right. Who's going to go first? Go ahead and start us off with our publisher, Scalbert. All right. Microsoft Game Studios was formed between 2000 and 2001, beginning their acquisitions with a few studios, namesake Fossa Interactive in 1999, mainly for their MechWarrior game series, then going on to Access Software later the same year for its Lynx series of golf games, and Ace Game Studio, which worked on the Microsoft Flight Simulator games. These game groups had established long-term publishing deals with developers like Ensemble Studios, known for Age of Empires and Age of Mythology, as well as Digital Anvil. Under Microsoft, Fossa Interactive was renamed Fossa Studio, and Access Software became Salt Lake Game Studio. Microsoft transitioned the games group into a wholly separated division named Microsoft Games around March 2000, along with other consolidation of games-related projects within Microsoft. Fossa Studio and Salt Lake Games Studio remained with Microsoft Games Studios, Digital Anvil and Ensemble Studios were acquired by Microsoft in 2000 and 2001, respectively. One of the first major studio acquisitions following the division's formation was Bungie in June of 2000, in the midst of its development of Halo Combat Evolved. With the acquisition, Halo, which had been planned for release on personal computers, became a Microsoft-published title, as well as a launch title for the Xbox on its release in 2001. Turn 10 Studios was also established in 2001 to work on the Forza series of racing games, and in 2002, Microsoft Game Studios acquired Rare, who had previously extensively worked and developed games for Nintendo platforms. An interesting fact about when Microsoft actually acquired Rare was given an account that Ed Fries himself recalls there being a bidding war for Rare Studios between Activision, Nintendo, and Microsoft, with Microsoft coming out on top with the highest bid. In 2003, Microsoft recognized that the EA Sports label was in a far stronger position to develop sports games for the Xbox console, and among realignment steps laid off about 78 employees that were developing sports games in-house, and sold Salt Lake Game Studios, now named Indie Games, to Take-Two Interactive in 2004, where it became Indie Built. In 2003, Peter Moore was named as Vice President of Microsoft Home and Entertainment Division, which included Microsoft Game Studios, the Xbox Division, and Microsoft's home hardware market. In addition to pulling big publishers like Electronic Arts to the Xbox platform, Moore tried to push the Xbox in Japan by courting Japanese developers with support from Microsoft Game Studios Publishing. Such games include Phantom Dust, and Blinks the Time Sweeper. Around 2004, Microsoft Game Studios established Carbonated Games as an internal studio for the development of casual games for Microsoft Web Games Portal, Microsoft MSN Games, on the chat client MSN Messenger, and on the Xbox Live platform. Kim and Fries were instrumental in securing Microsoft Game Studios' publishing deal with Lionhead Studios for their 2004 game Fable, which would serve as the first major role-playing game on the Xbox platform. Subsequently, in 2006, Microsoft Game Studios acquired Lionhead Studios along with the Fable properties, as it sought to secure a Fable sequel for the upcoming 360. Microsoft Game Studios folded the staff of Digital Anvil into the larger studio in 2005, following the release of 2003's Brute Force, and closed down the studio entirely in 2006. Fossa Studio was closed three and a half months after the May 2007 release of their last game, Shadowrun. In 2007, Microsoft Game Studios announced an opening of an European office in Reading, England, headed by general manager Phil Spencer. Moore opted to leave Microsoft in July of 2007 as to move back to the San Francisco Bay Area with his family 
and to rejoin Electronic Arts. Don Matrick was named as his replacement as the new vice president of the Xbox games business which included Microsoft Game Studios. Later in 2007, Bungie amendably split from Microsoft Game Studios to become a privately held independent company, with Microsoft Game Studios retaining the rights to the Halo property. Bungie continued to develop two additional Halo games for Microsoft Game Studios, namesake Halo 3 ODST in 2009 and Halo Reach in 2010. Simultaneously, Microsoft Game Studios founded 343 Industries as an internal studio to develop future Halo games without Bungie, using some of Bungie's former employees. Microsoft Game Studios, to this day, continues to develop and publish games for the Xbox console and doesn't show any signs of slowing down. What do you got on our developer, SoftMike? Right, so our developer is Rare Limited. Rare Limited was formed in England in 1985, shortly before the Stamper Brothers sold off Ultimate Play the Game. Rare took over the development activities for the NES, Rare Coinit, a sister company, was formed in Miami under separate directorship, but Rare only produced four coin ops, only one of which it published itself. They produced a large number of NES games, including RC Pro-Am and the Battletoads franchise, which was possibly based on the then-topical success of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. During the NES days, Rare became allied with Zippo Games, later buying that company from Steve and John Pickford, and renaming it Rare Manchester. During this period, Rare developed many licenses and also programmed conversions. In 1993 and 1994, Rare risked the expense of a great deal of Silicon Graphics technology. This resulted in the creation of the Donkey Kong Country series for the SNES. Killer Instinct for the arcades, which was published by Midway, with subsequent console conversions published by Nintendo, used the same technology with similarly successful results. The creation of Donkey Kong Country, apart from making Rare Rich, which was released after the Sega Saturn, toward the end of the SNES lifetime, resulting in it being the only obvious product for SNES owners to buy that Christmas. Nintendo had bought 25% of Rare shares in 1995, meaning that Rare became a Nintendo's second-party developer. This relationship flourished after the release of the N64, which Rare supported with a string of high-selling games, such as GoldenEye 007, which sold around 5 million copies worldwide. Starting in 1997, Rare began to self-publish games under the 1995-founded Rareware Limited. In September 2002, Rare was bought by Microsoft for an alleged $375 million, and they were tasked to develop two launch titles for the new Xbox 360 console that was released in November 2005, Cameo, Elements of Power, and Perfect Dark Zero. Although very well received, they didn't match the success of Rare's earlier system sellers. In the first three years, after the Microsoft acquisition, Rare also created titles for THQ, such as Banjo-Kazooie, Grunty's Revenge, and Banjo-Pilot in the Banjo-Kazooie series, as well as Saberwolf and its Mr. Pants. Rare also made two titles for Microsoft for the original Xbox, which were grabbed by the Ghoulies and Conquer Live and Reloaded. In January 2007, it was announced that co-founders Chris and Tim Stamper were leaving the company that they once founded to pursue other opportunities. After the Xbox 360 launch titles, Rare was almost uniquely focused on the Viva Pinata franchise for Microsoft. Other projects were Diddy Kong Racing DS, returning to an original franchise, Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts as another entry in a long-running series, and the XPL game Jetpack Refuel. As one of the Microsoft's cornerstone developers, Rare created the Kinect Sports game for the launch of the Xbox 360 Kinect peripheral in November 2010, as the equivalent of Wii Sports for the Nintendo Wii launch, even though Kinect Sports was not bundled with the device. Rare still is making games today, like the new Perfect Dark and Everwild being produced later this year. That's awesome. 
I, I love seeing a studio survive because it's so rare that we're finding literally so far. <laughs> right. Uh, but yes, I'm excited for rare to come out with a new IP that just might match the greatness that they had when they were making games in the nineties. Yeah, that would be a, a nice change of pace to get away from the, uh, the current competitive edge of uh, modern day AAA titles. Or maybe, you know, it would be nice to see them work out a deal with MGM to uh, do something in the James Bond scene. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else you have? Well, I guess the only thing I can think of would be, it might be fun to note, that the Grab by the Ghoulies was originally going to be a Nintendo GameCube title. And it was converted over to the Xbox during development cycle due to the acquisition of Microsoft taking them over. You can actually see references to the Dolphin interface still be found in the game code. Ah, the code name for the, the GameCube. Yes. That's awesome. Um, but wait, there's more. Also, as another fun fact, the game began life as a name before anything else. The developers came up with a name as a title for a game, then decided to create the game from that title. Most games are created with the concept first, then get a finalized name later in the design process. Right. There is, a, like there is a dumb little added part to the end of that. Saying in the United Kingdom, ghoulies means testicles. Uh, well, at least not spelt the same way. Right. <laughs> uh, around here, we call them gonads. But all right, so, interesting facts yeah. you got there. Is there uh, anything else we have? That is it. So, all right, sounds like we are on to our first segment. It's time for the X-ray, where we dive into the main features of in-depth gameplay. Okay, as we start the game, we see the standard opening sequence, but this time it's a little bit different. It's done in classic Rare fashion, where the developer and publisher are shown as books, and the wind blows the books open, causing them to fall off of each other from the stack that they're in, at the same time revealing Easter eggs hidden on their pages. Once you get to the last book in the sequence, the Grab by the Ghoulies logo appears, and the theme song starts playing with a whole crowd of ghoulies jumping out from the corners of the screen in their silly fashion, to which this game showcases the basic elements of its combat system in storybook form. If you sit on the start screen long enough, you can see different types of gameplay and different types of elements of the game's functions, some being the combat and some being actual gameplay footage. Once the two sequences have ended, they'll just end up repeating themselves. From there, you can press start, and this game, right out the gate, has no problem showing you that it truly is a one-player game, giving you three different options of save games to choose from that you can load up and go into the main menu of. From here, you're able to continue your game on the first selection that you come across in your game saves main menu. You can continue from the last point that you left off. In the middle would be your features, where you can replay the storybook, replay a chapter, replay a scene, or choose game options, and also view the gallery. The game options are very simple. You have information on Butler's Brew, correct? I do. Okay, uh, so before we get to that, the camera rotation, you can change that between normal or reversed, or inverted, I guess, and then you can also turn the controller vibration on or off. And then lastly on this option is the Butler's Brew. Go ahead, Soft Mike. All right, so the Butler's Brew is an option that is available during the game where you can actually have it enabled two ways. One would be via the options menu, 
And the other uh, way it can be enabled is actually if you ever faint during the first three chapters of the game, uh, the butler Cribbins will message you when you restart the level if you'd like to try some crackers and tea. What that does is it allows you to play that level with double the health, so that would help you greatly when facing whatever challenges. As far as I know, based on what I read, it does not affect your overall ending ranking either, but it, it does tally that up in the statistics list, however many brews you've had over the course of the game by the end of the game. Uh, so That affects your, uh, your ultimate score. Well, according to the guide, it doesn't. All right, going on from the game options, you can view the gallery. In the gallery, there is a selection of concept art as well as other things that you can unlock via the challenge mode. But the requirement to unlock each one of these different items is pretty heavy, as you have to achieve a platinum medal in any one of the challenges to unlock whatever special artwork is related to it. All right, now moving out of the gallery back into the actual main menu, you find the third and last option, which would be your bonus challenges. All right, now getting into the main game. I'm going to let you take the wheels off, Mike. So our characters for this game are Cooper. Our hero is an unsuspecting young everyman trying to make the best of his predicament and ultimately rescue Amber from the depths of this hair-rising hall. And Amber is Cooper's girlfriend who is not having a good day and isn't likely to see it improve much until Cooper, hopefully, manages to get her out of Ghoulhaven. Crivens is Ghoulhaven Hall's elderly butler and is one of Cooper's first contacts within the house and soon proved himself to be an extremely valuable ally. Miles Soupswell, the in-house cook, whose culinary talents may later come in handy, just don't ask questions about her slightly odd choice of assistant. Fiddlesworth, he's the official groundskeeper of Ghoulhaven Hall, charged with the unenviable task of patrolling and maintaining the gardens and outbuildings. Babs Buffbrass, the long-serving housekeeper, may look a bit rough around the edges, but she's worth keeping in mind as a source of Ghoulhaven insider knowledge. Dr. Crackpot is the right-hand man to the Baron of the Hall. Crackpot certainly lives up to his name and is a keen scientist with suspiciously close ties to the ghoulies themselves. Then Baron Von Ghoul is the owner of Ghoulhaven Hall and the slightly unhinged mastermind behind Cooper's entire nerve-jangling ordeal. Is a final reckoning with the Baron inevitable? And that's all we have. All right. Surprisingly short list of characters, but at the same time, a strong list of characters that are very prevalent in the entire story and help you a great deal in your journey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> Next thing is how the controls function, which actually had a very unique control scheme. The game's camera. Uh, how did you feel about that? I thought the game's camera was a little odd having to use the triggers as your camera balancer is kind of weird never seen that really in a game so to have to use the triggers as instead of like the triggers being like an attack or something it's a camera controller so that's i don't know to me felt really weird it's like you know doing something you've been doing your entire life and then it's like well we're gonna change that like using it for attack oh right and then now it's like this is your camera yeah. Instead of using the right tri- the right thumbstick and the triggers switch places for this game. Right. The camera scheme for me was definitely something to get used to. I found myself in I found myself in moments that were very stressful, kind of tripping over the controls. Even though I had played this game a few times, you know, and played it a lot, really extensively, I would say, in my childhood. And uh, then picking it back up again for the podcast, you know, all that time in between, 
I kind of became more accustomed to the general control scheme, which would be right thumbstick is your camera. I would press the wrong button, which would ultimately mean my demise in some situations, or I would end up not performing the attack that I wanted to. And uh, it did get frustrating, but if you stick with this game, you'll learn its control scheme. The learning curve for this game, I would call somewhat of a handicap because it's taking something like you said, that you've known your entire life and completely changing it. Although I did like how it controlled and it actually is a pretty innovative way to configure the controls. Ultimately, the control scheme was a little bit difficult to learn, but I don't think it was a, that big of a deal. Just something different. And sometimes it's a breath of fresh air. Sometimes it's a complete game breaker. And in this case, I think it was a little bit of a breath of fresh air. And at the same time, a little bit of a frustrating learning curve. Having to use your right thumbstick to attack was definitely a different concept. And that didn't exactly work perfectly you know, um, it seems like the the aiming of the weapons wasn't as controllable as it could have been. It was more like there was only certain points of articulation that actually aimed versus you had a full 360 field of aim. It seemed like for certain directions, you only had a certain window of aim. So that, that's probably like my only gripe is the combat system. The aiming was a little bit flawed, it felt like. Uh, but otherwise, the controls functioned pretty much as you would expect them to with a lot of polish and without any issues that I could really detect. Tell us how the story begins. All right. Reading directly from our manual. After walking for hours, Cooper's map reading skills are proving less impressive by the minute. The storm is almost upon them. And the latest development reveals Cooper and Amber squinting up at a building that looms suddenly from the darkness. Perched like a watchful vulture on top of a cliff, Ghoulhaven Hall broods over the shadowy landscape that forms its domain, lit by well-timed melodramatic zigzags of lightning. It's also noticeably absent from the map. Cooper shudders. Personally, he'd rather brave the storm than seek shelter in what appears to be a set of the, some over-the-top 1960s horror film. Amber's not listening to his concerns, however. She just had enough, and manages to drag Cooper as far as the main gates before he insists on checking the map one last time, trying to work out the quickest route to the real civilization. Big mistake. The next time he looks up, the creatures of Ghoulhaven had materialized out of thin air, bundled up the thrashing Amber, and whisked her away into the depths of the haunted house. Within seconds, no trace of Amber or her captors remains, and Cooper's world is turned totally upside down. Stunned, he realizes he has no choice but to attempt a rescue. What Cooper doesn't know is that there's more to Ghoulhaven Hall than meets the eye. A lot more. This first fateful appearance of its inhabitants has given him an inkling that it's not just your everyday dilapidated old mansion, but until he sets foot inside, he has no idea just how many ghoulies crammed the place from Florida rafters, where they came from, or how they fit into the master plan of Ghoulhaven's shadowy owner. So that's our overview of the story. That's an interesting start. I have played it a few times from the start. I love the way that the story is told. It's your classic recipe of the old school style character interaction that Rare was known for in the 90s, where it was just some kind of a murmur or sigh that was audible from the character. And you could also tell which character was speaking because each one had their own unique sound. So, okay, getting into the game, we have plenty of objects at our disposal. This is a game that pretty much 
has a very unique dependature on its specific gameplay style, which I really like, honestly. You know, the destructible environments and the just grabbing an object from the environment that you can use against your foes is a great concept. And it also adds just another level of detail to a game, especially in the funny way that they do it. And, you know, you do walk into specific opening scenes uh, where the characters are doing something funny or, or goofy, and it, it does involve an object that you can actually use in the game. Do you have a couple of those opening scenes that you want to elaborate on? Yeah, like the first one I can think of for kind of a funny scene would be the dancing embassy room. Oh, yeah. The embassy ballroom, I guess. Yes. Yes, that's it. <laughs> where the the uh, the mummy's scratching the record. He's the DJ mummy. <laughs> yes. Yep. That would be one of the ones that was like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> I, yeah, I found that to be a great one. That's actually one of my oldest memories of this game. Going back to me discovering this game as a as a playable demo while just combing through Project Gotham Racing 2. I came across this game when I was much younger that was actually included in the demo. It really does. That, that scene alone sets the tone for the game because like prior to that level, I mean, really just sort of like there is a little bit of like poor element in, and then you get to that room and it's like you can tell that's when the developers were like, we're going to have fun with this game. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely like, let's not take this game too seriously. Let's dial it back a little bit and give you something to, you know, to laugh about and kind of like reward you for getting to that point. Yeah. The the game also has a unique ability to give you a chance to strategically take advantage of your environment prior to the challenges that can be triggered or that just start at the beginning of a level where in that room you can take advantage of the strategically placed objects that are outside of the bounds that trigger the point of no return, which brings us to the weapons. And first of all, the environment weapons where around the outside edge, there's like a, a dining area around the dance floor. And uh, this game's unique layout gives you the ability to strategically give yourself an advantage to get through this room because the basic challenge of this room is to get through the dance floor without being bumped into by any of the zombies or skeletons that are out on the dance floor having a good time uh, or to run into them yourself and basically throw off the entire group and then wind up being stuck out in an all-out to the death brawl. You can go around the outside edge and you can pick up the small six-hit throwing objects, which would be the pile of bottles. And what you can do with those is there's a skeleton right in front of the exit to the actual ballroom dance floor, which leads to the end of the level. If you grab the bottles before going through, you're able to throw them at him. And if you can dispatch him with the bottles in your hands, you basically clear yourself a path. Mind you, if you're careful as you go through to get through and be done without having to fight anybody. You can also take advantage of a couple potted plants, which are large one-hit objects. You can pick those up and throw them across the dance floor, potentially hitting multiple enemies and dispersing them so that they are no longer in the same position that they were in when you went into that room. Thus, giving you more of a chance to sneak through without bumping in anybody or getting hit. I understand you were actually able to navigate without knocking the skeleton away from the, uh, the exit, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I don't know how I did it. I just like... <laughs> Either I got the animation timing just right when I snuck right by him, or it was just the fact that he's just that far away that gives you a sliver of opportunity to get by. <laughs> yes, yes, because he, 
he has a pretty rapid movement animation and it's a very short he'll he'll move away from it and then move right back and it's like maybe a couple tiles that he does it's not much um i've successfully snuck around him a couple times but i just really prefer since it doesn't trigger the game at all uh to just grab the bottles and take them out and then go through uh a notable scene for me starting would probably be one of two one would be when you get into the lighthouse living quarters uh you'll happen upon two zombies that are sitting at either end of a table and what's hilarious about it is they're playing cards and in this scene one of them farts and like fans the fart away with the cards and they're like looking all suspicious toward each other and making their little sounds and some dialogue pops up where the one zombie's upset with the other one saying the cards are all wrong you cheat you betray me that's when they get locked into some kind of a, a scripted fight where they start swinging their arm running toward each other it's basically a fight to the death they'll continue to do this where they wind up their arm to the punch the other one and knock him down and his arm breaks off which he then freaks out and grabs his arm and pops it back on and then the other one will come back and punch him and then it's just like whatever one gets hit first is the one that's going to die but it's going to take a while um which brings me to the next weapon the next weapon that you can use which i thought this was a very unique way of creating a, a usable weapon it's a weapon that wasn't one to start with but becomes one once it has been dislodged whenever a zombie goes to swing at you with his winding arm he'll punch so hard that he breaks his arm off and if you are able to get rid of him or at least knock him away before he grabs his arm and pops it back on you can then grab his arm off the ground and use it as a weapon against him now that would be one of your medium-sized three hit objects the other opening scene for me would be where you walk into the workshop and there's a skeleton cooking eggs and bacon in a frying pan right next to this giant kiln like oven in the middle of the room and as the guide describes it you see a skeleton cooking a full english breakfast and he isn't happy to see you <laughs> you can actually hear the sounds of like bacon cooking in the pan so it's really funny you can see the sunny side up egg and the bacon in the pan you can hear it like sizzling and the skeletons moving the pan back and forth like he's actually cooking it but uh as, as soon as the walking in camera goes away and it's back to you controlling cooper he then proceeds to try and beat you up with that pan which the frying pan would be a medium-sized three hit object which the different kinds of objects in this game that you can use can range from potted plants like we had just discussed laundry hampers you can even throw a full-size cake those all would be considered among other weapons of that category large one-hit objects moving on the medium-sized three-hit objects can include a candlestick a dead swordfish a wheelbarrow the frying pan with eggs and bacon a guitar a broom and many more objects that's actually one of the most common categories if not the most common category of household item that you can use as a weapon and then lastly would be the small six-hit throwing objects which can be a pile of bottles a group of hamburgers, half a dozen eggs, and even some toilet paper rolls. We also have a list of weapons that are usable in the game that you are given throughout your playthrough by various characters that are in this mansion serving under the Baron himself that help you with certain missions in this game. You want to go off on those ones, Soft Mike? Sure. 
So starting with the candle was being the first one you get. It can be used to dispatch mummies given to you by Crivens. Um, then you have the water squirter, which is given to you by Fiddlesworth. And it's used to kill zombies. <laughs> then you have the garlic shooter, which is used to kill vampires. Vampire chickens, which is given to you by Fiddlesworth as well. <laughs> then you have the uh, Ma Soups and her pal Mr. Ribs will give you the fire extinguisher, which will rid the room of fire imps. I believe that's actually the second weapon you get in the game. And then you get the soda can shooter by Babs Buff Brass. That is used to take out imps, zombies, and skeletons which has an area of effect damage explosion, so it's pretty much like one of the best weapons you can get. Oh, yes. Not only that, but it makes you probably thirsty while you're using it, so make sure to bring a drink. <laughs> uh, you will be, if you plan to do a full playthrough, more than likely sitting and playing this game for a good three to five hours straight, depending on your skill level. Now, as you go through this mansion you also can encounter 28 different unique enemies you want to go off on those ones yes yeah, so our 28 unique enemies starting with the first one you get is the imps pretty much generally most common ghoulie that you face so after the imp you have things like the skeleton be the next enemy that you encounter pretty ruthlessly common and funny Oh, yeah. Very goofy personality added to the skeleton. Also very smart. Yes, very smart. The um, only enemy in the game that can actually use common household items as weapons like you. Yes. You have spiders that will come out. We have the big head imp, which is special imps that can do a grapple attack on you. To get out of it, you have to swing your thumbsticks out in the stun uh, to avoid damage. The haunted television is another enemy. Very uh, deadly attack with the electrical damage if you try to attack it. Yes, you have to attack that enemy only with throwable objects or the squirt gun. Yes. The soda can shooter can also damage it. The haunted chairs, which are uh, very deadly. Oh, that, that like have... swoosh attack that they do. Yes. We have the ancient mummies, which are invincible unless you have the candle. Or knock them into fire. Yes. Haunted doors. Which is like your first boss battle. Yeah, pretty much. Kind of hilarious. It will hit you so quickly. So, yeah, that's... <laughs> There's uh, that. Then we go into the fire imps, which are put out with the fire extinguisher. We have the Grim Reaper and the zombie. The Grim Reaper being like the ultimate bad guy. Uh, Basically, yeah, one touch and you're dead. And he only generally appears if you fail to meet the requirements of a challenge in any of the rooms. Unless... He appears without that being a prompt, which I don't think that happens in the game. Right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a, you could go the entire game completing every challenge, but there are a few levels I believe the Grim Reaper could be scripted. Uh, ninja Imps, which are <laughs> much more deadly than regular Imps. And very annoying. Their melee attacks are very fast, but they're definitely beatable. They can also do um, a chant that makes them become about three, what, three to four times their, their normal size? Yeah. You'll hear oh, yeah. you'll hear as you're walking into one of the rooms throughout your playthrough, just like a, a like a whole trio, if not more, of a no 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 Oh my gosh, yeah, that noise. I laughed when I first heard because I was like, What is that? Someone playing a banjo? Right. You don't get any kind of warning when you're walking into that room as to what is actually going on or what you're hearing. Uh it 
I love how this game just continues to surprise you throughout the entire experience. And uh, yeah, coming across this for the first time was also like a double take what in the heck kind of reaction I had. Yeah. Uh, yeah yes. Anyway, going further. We have the Medusa. Ugh. Oh, oh yeah. That is a very, uh, very hard enemy. It has two different um, modes. That one's very unique in its own regard. You know, she can switch between a search mode, which... She actually, if you run into her green beam coming off of her eyeballs as she's moving kind of like a spotlight, uh, she produces a, not a jump scare, but a quick time jump scare, which prompts you to enter a combination of buttons quickly so that way you don't lose health, becoming so scared that it, you know, it hurts you or you receive damage. Um, and then her other form of attack is just walking around normally. And if she spots you within her range, she uses her snake hair as a whip to attack you with. And the, the attack is pretty devastating. Yeah, I, I always try to take her out when she's in search mode. Yes. That's the only way. Um, after the Medusa, we have the zombie pirate. Definitely. Very deadly. Yeah. Uh, you, you go very ahead. Very deadly. Yeah, very deadly enemy. Uh, as you had told me about that Excalibur, they have a very devastating attack. Oh yeah, the uh, and they they announce the attacks too, which is which is also unique for them because um, whenever they they put down their sword to pull out some, a treasure chest, they'll yell "Pieces of me!" and then they'll throw it, and that's an object that can pretty much knock your health almost to zero. It's pretty harsh whenever you get hit by their treasure chest. And then uh, another attack of theirs that's extremely deadly would be when they use their sword and they run at you with it. And they also announce that attack with a run you through. And uh, when they lunge and get you, it's pretty devastating. But they put their sword down when they do the throw attack. And if you're able to knock them away from the sword and pick it up, it is a one-hit kill item for anything that you hit it with but unless you pick up the super power up that makes your weapon invincible while it's active it only is a three hit object so after our pirate we have the hunchback which is sort of like the uh is that really what second yeah i thought he had a name yeah i was initially confused when i read the instructions i thought it was like you need to attack his back mm-hmm. and i was like all right Let's do that. And I kept hitting him. And I'm like, what the heck? I'm doing what it said. And then <laughs> I hit him in the f- hit him in the face. And that was yep. like the golden ticket right there. Only thing with him, though, is you have to watch how much you hit him in the face. Because there's a point where if you hit him too many times, he becomes very frustrated and angry. And if you keep doing it, he becomes red and enraged. And he'll, that will allow him to release a very vicious and quick attack that... He gets stuck doing for quite some time, which he put both of his fists out straight from his body, kind of like a T-pose, and he'll spin violently. And that's that's quite a devastating attack. All right. Our next enemy after that would be the zombie pirate captain. So another entity that you can face in the game is what's called a scare ghoulie. A scare ghoulie is a special type of enemy that appears in certain areas of the game that aren't quite as frightening as their super scary shock brethren. They still strike fear into even the toughest of adventures. The spirit of the beast in question takes the form of a red ball with a frightening face. 
which first appears small, then balloons out to fill the screen in the nearby area. Run away so you aren't caught in the expanding ball, or you're scared for five seconds. During this time, you move at half speed, can't attack, and suffer double damage if any enemies hit you. These foes appear randomly in some types of places throughout the mansion. You'll never know when you'll set one off, so be cautious all the time. These include the Blobelda the Guard Dog, which is the Baron's other favorite hound. The Goose of this departed red wolf still lurks around the grounds. Goose. The Haunted. <laughs> the Goose. <laughs> the, the Baron's other favorite hound. The ghost of this departed red wolf still lurks around the grounds. Haunted Telephone. This call isn't for you. Give a wide berth to any black old-style telephones you see. The Munching Cavalier. He's a ghost with a plan to munch on rotting food in the house, and he isn't sharing his meal. Bony Arm is a long, spindly arm that can sometimes be seen poking out of walls to beckon you to a scary fright. Ogrehead. The spirit of the Ogrehead in the trophy room. This green head lets out a roar from wardrobes or boxes. The Freaky Monk. Lounging on sofas or benches and is the hall's oldest resident. A monk from centuries ago. Don't disturb him. Spooky Grandpa. Pesky meddling kids wandering around disturbing the peace. Watch out for Grandpa on your bookcases. <laughs> the Hag. A bony and crusty witch with a severe personality problem. She can be seen screaming at windows. Spooky Granny. Grandpa's better half clutches a broom in areas that need a sweep. Stay away. So there are certain little hints as to where you could see each of these scaregories. The next enemy you see won't be for quite a while, but it actually ends up being the flying imps. The flying imps are kind of annoying. They fly around and try to avoid you for the most part, but sneak in behind you and slap you with their wings. Uh, they also have a rather devastating attack where given any moment that they are in the air and have the chance, they enlarge their tail with like a really cartoony boing sound. And they use the tail with a dive bomb like kamikaze effect right at you. And they, they do wind up getting stuck in the ground or whatever they land on in their course to try and attack you so that's one enemy that you want to dispatch as quickly as possible when you run across it because of that attack next enemy is the chickens and the vampire chickens another kind of annoying enemy that's pretty easy to dispatch because pretty much every time you run into this enemy you have the garlic shooter at your disposal it's a one-hit kill as well as being very easy to dispatch multiple because of its blast radius which isn't very large, but the vampire chickens tend to coop up together, no pun intended, uh, in small groups. So it's easy if you aim just right into the middle of like three of them or four of them, you could possibly take all of them out in one shot. Also, the, the blast radius from the gun is just large enough to where if you are being chased by them before they get the chance to run up and jump onto you and take a, take a bite of your neck, which they will do, um, via like some kind of a grapple attack you can shoot at the objects close to you as you're running past them while they're chasing you and if they run into the blast left over from the garlic hitting that object before it dissipates that'll also dispatch them you won't actually have to directly hit them interesting um after that we have the cursed mummies cursed mummies oh this enemy has two very unique attacks where he can use the tablet that he has in his hands to chant or conjure up a spell that if you're hit by the effect that it that it fires off, it makes you very slow 
It gives him the ability to catch up to you and smack you with his tablet, which is a very devastating attack. Also, he can conjure up a floating skull curse, which causes you to faint or die within 30 seconds of being cursed by it. The only way to break that curse would be to dispatch this mummy by either kicking him into a fire or burning him with the candle. The other way that you can escape this mummy, if you have neither one, you can exit the room. And then lastly, a fact about him is he is twice as powerful as the regular mummy. So it's even harder to take care of him if you have a candle. And he's also harder to take care of by kicking into a fire than the actual mummies are. So our next character is Mr. Ribs. The only time you run into Mr. Ribs is in the kitchen. When you are on your way to get the egg from the chicken coops for Mama Soups, he snatches the egg at the last second and runs off with it. You then go back through the levels you had just went through to get to that point and find him in the kitchen holding the egg. At that point, you must drain his health all the way to zero before a cutscene kicks in, showing that he's actually a good guy. And then after that, you really don't have any interaction with him directly other than just following him to complete a portion of the story. All right. Uh, after that is the Skeleton Maids. The Skeleton Maids appear only in the Grand Hallway, tidying up after your recent exploits in this chamber. When they spot you, they attack with a feather duster. This strike is quick, so step back and then smash into them afterward. But also beware because more will drop down. And the feather duster is a weapon that you can pick up throughout the game. It's not too common, but nonetheless, it's one of the medium three hit weapons. In that same hallway, the haunted paintings. Yes. Haunted paintings are pretty unique. Um, It's the only enemy in the game that can change its size and uh its attack is also a suicide attack if it's not a successful hit it was basically for nothing the haunted painting will generally try to attack you by spinning and then flying toward your general direction because they float just to deal a very small amount of damage they're pretty easy to dispatch um, and they make a very funny noise Uh, Their final attack, which would be the suicide attack, is they go up into the air above your camera view and expand to an enormous size. And then they body slam into the ground trying to hit you. But um, if they're unsuccessful, they tend to hit the ground and explode into a bunch of pieces. And another, another cool thing about that is the pieces remain their enlarged size. So like their goofy eyeballs and such remain ginormous compared to their normal state, which is pretty funny. So after that is the haunted coats. The haunted coats, probably one of the most annoying enemies in this entire game. Uh, I hate them with a passion. They're pretty easy to spot. They're a pretty shoddy looking coat with a feathered, very fancy hat and some powdered wig looking like extensions coming from them they attack you by floating around as well as the paintings do Um, they have a spin attack as well and it does come a lot more quickly than the paintings attack uh, which makes it annoying as well as their attack speed they're very quick and their fury of blows is constant which is also annoying Um, they're kind of difficult to get rid of and they when they and when they are 
knocked down, they they tend to glide across the room. So by the time you get to them to try and finish them off, they've already recovered and gotten back up. And most of the time, they'll smack you before you smack them, which, once again, is annoying. So uh, after that enemy, we are introduced to a pretty famous one, Jesse and Clyde. Jesse and Clyde. Oh, these guys. They're actually part of the hardest room in the entire game. And um, actually would be my X Games moment. They are extremely hard to dispatch. They have a lot of health. I think 100 health or 80. They're generally harmless until you come within close proximity of them. Um, At that point, they become aggravated and uh, (laughs) proceed to eat the flower that they're skipping and hopping within their hand. And at that point, they will basically hunt you down, punch you, or... They will grab you and throw you across the room, which each time that that happens, you'll lose five health. They also do a extremely hard lunge punch attack, which is very devastating. So they could actually finish you off very quickly if you have low health and you encounter them. Yeah, that is a serious enemy right there. Mm-hmm. So our last enemy of chapter two boss battle is ghoulie amber oh yes ghoulie amber think practically the same thing as jesse and clyde runs faster than you has a really harsh punch attack and then also grabs and throws you across the room devastating your health just as much all right warlock warlock's not too hard to dispatch he is pretty easy to predict he will basically teleport himself to different portions of the room and really only comes about once you've broken an object that he is hiding in at that point he will emerge and he'll basically be a like a miniature boss battle he has about three different locations that he'll appear in randomly and every time he appears in a location he will conjure from his wand and fire an ice ball at you which knocks you back and uh he doesn't stay in any of those locations for very long so you need to be quick to attack and also need to find cover to not be hit by any of his ice balls another thing about him is his attacks become more rapid as his health bar becomes lower so when he first spawns in he'll only conjure up one ice ball but after he's been hit at least once He'll conjure up two before he goes off to his next location and then so on and so forth up to a maximum of four uh, ice balls. He will fire at you um, in very fast succession, I might add. So if you can time it right and are familiar with the way he attacks, if you hide behind an object while he's near one hit or two hits from from, you know, being defeated, you can dodge by being behind any object with a large hitbox that could block the ice balls and then run out from behind that object if you're close to him and take care of him the rest of the way, pretty much. He's kind of easy and kind of not easy to take care of. He requires patience and he also requires a strategy to get rid of. But ultimately, if you use patience and strategy, he's not that hard. But if you don't, he is. All right. After that is the vampire. Oh, yeah. She's pretty annoying. The different various attacks she has, what she'll do is she'll walk around in her coffin. And when you're in close proximity to her, she will walk very fast over to you, almost like a scurry. And um, 
she will then open up the door to her coffin, which if you're close enough and don't dodge, it smacks you and instantly will stun you to at that point, allow her to drag you into her coffin and she attacks you in her coffin with a, like heart bubbles <laughs> coming out of the coffin while it bounces around. And during this attack, unless you're able to swirl your thumbsticks to get out of the coffin, the only way to dispatch her is to either knock her into a fire or to hit her with the garlic shooting gun um, when her coffin is open, exposing her to a shot from it. If you don't have that, just try to keep her away by knocking her down. Okay. Our next enemy is the worms. All right. The worms are kind of annoying, but they're not too bad. As long as you can go around a an object that is circular, you have a good chance of not being hit by their blast. They don't actually attack you, but once they are aware of your presence, either by being uncovered by breaking an object that they are hiding inside of or attacking them, they will then turn red. They will then follow you very fast, like really fast, by hopping rapidly. And there is a timer that appears over their head once they are in that mode that counts down from five. And when it gets to zero, the worm will expand and explode. And the blast radius is pretty devastating to your health. So I would find an object that I can go around the corner of quickly or find a circular object that I can circle around while they're chasing me. Because once the blast radius happens, objects negate that effect if you're around them enough. And then we have Dr. Crackpot. Yes. Dr. Crackpot is another one of the bad guys in the game. One of only two, actually, other than the Baron. You don't have any interactions directly, except for in story. Uh, he also okay. turns Amber into a ghoul. Okay. Yes, from the second chapter. Yes. 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 Well, no. Actually, it's the end of the first chapter, but yeah. So after that, we get into Chapter 4, where we face Baron Von Gul and the Red Baron. Interesting battle, interesting boss fight to pretty much be the climax of this game. The Baron himself is an interesting fight. As you start off with him walking around in his bedroom, he has a, he has like a staff that he uses to attack you with. And his attacks are very quick. If you're able to dodge them, and knock him down and away from his staff, you can pick up his staff because your attacks actually do no damage to him. But once you pick up his staff, he jumps up with his hands next to the sides of his head in surprise and demands that you give his staff back to him, which if you don't, you can strike him with it, draining his health down very little at, with each hit. And uh, I will add, when you attack him with his staff, it takes 10 health per hit and any of his attacks are also 10 health. So it's a very devastating attack from the Baron himself. But uh, once you drain his health enough, then he runs into his little hanger in his closet and finishes what he calls the Red Baron, which would be a miniature plane that he then pilots around his bedroom and does aerial attacks with basically kamikazes right into you uh, at different times. If you stand still, he will pause and then proceed to try and ram into you with his plane, and that also does a massive amount of damage to your health. The first time you're able to actually hurt him is when he is stunned from performing one of these aerial attacks. 
you can throw an object at him, which will hurt him. And once you've hit him the first time, he then conjures up a wave of enemies that jump out from around the room by blowing into like a, a little horn in a very funny and uh, lackluster fashion. Uh, once you dispatch that wave of enemies, you're then facing him again solely waiting for him to do another dive bomb attack so that he can become stunned and you can hit him again. It's quite the process and it's very challenging because even while you're running around the room taking care of the waves of enemies, he still from time to time will aim at you with his plane and perform the dive bomb attack. And basically it doesn't matter what's in his way. He's going to hit it and at the same time try and hit you while he does it. So it is kind of hilarious if you haven't knocked out all the enemies and he tries to perform one of these attacks. If there's a zombie or a skeleton or an imp or whatever it may be in his path, he's going to hit it and knock it out of the way. <laughs> uh, but once you get rid of the Baron, you are able to proceed to the very end of the game where you get the skeleton key from the Baron by defeating him. Chapter 5 starts in the Grand Hallway. You emerge from the Baron's quarters and spot Mr. Rubes waving at you with the key. Do -do -do -do. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he sprints off to the first room in the mansion where Kidnap Kid is imprisoned. You turn right, run around the balcony, and follow him inside. So you're basically following Mr. Ribs. Defeating the Baron, you then receive the skeleton key, which Mr. Ribs once again grabs before you have the chance to. And at that point, it is a race against the clock, which ensues and starts chapter five. You have 13 minutes to go through all of the special skeleton doors, which are shortcuts to get to different parts of the mansion to the locations of the kidnapped children. And uh, as you go through, you have the chance to, if you find them all in time and complete all the challenges that you have to face in that time frame, you get to the main gate uh, and free the last of the kidnapped children. Which then at that point, a cutscene ensues where an imp sneaks up behind you and knocks you out with a giant bone. And while you're incapacitated, the story shows that the imps are starting to, they're closing in on your body and uh, it kind of insinuates that they're going to eat you. But right at that point in time, Ma Soups jumps into the picture and uh, in a twisting turn of events, which I thought was really cool. You get to play as Ma Soups with a giant stirring spoon in your hands. And uh, it's just an all-out beat-em-up frenzy for the very end of the game. You have to dispatch, I think, a hundred or more imps in, to, to finish the game. But once you've knocked out the last wave of imps, the story does truly conclude with all the characters saying their goodbyes to you and Amber as you two continue down the path that you were on trying to make it into the village. Very interesting ending. Yes. <laughs> yes. So also at the end of the game, there is a super scary score, as they call it. To get the best score possible, you need to have rescued all the kids, fainted the minimum amount of times, or so zero. You lose, a point. you lose a point for every 10 faints. Yeah. So you have to faint less than 10 times the entire playthrough. You also have to play the game in less than three hours. So you have to beat nice. the game in three hours. For every every 25 minutes you go over that, you lose one point. So you have to beat the game in either three hours or less, with each additional 25 minutes taking one point. <clears throat> you have to have defeated over 700 ghouls. 
per every uh, 20 enemies defeated under 700 is one point. And um, uh, from what we understand, the butler's brew does not affect that final score, even though it gives you a slight advantage if you have to use it or decide to, right? Right. Okay, cool. So it's just a nice little thing to have in there. Um, Not that many games have something like that. That's that's a pretty deep addition to put into a game. And uh, this game's kind of, you know, built in a silly slash uh, more kid gauged or oriented way. So I, I could see that kind of a thing being something that they would brainstorm about adding to the game to to make it more accessible. In the late game, some of these rooms become brutal. And I think that would be something that I would love to have taken advantage of when I was much younger and never even knew what was. Yeah, it's hard to tell what specific things you're going to do, especially without the info. But that's why we're here. We're here to find out what exactly you can do, what can you get away with, and uh, have fun while playing the game. So Right. You know, like you just said, as far as our uh, information and reporting goes, some of the stuff we're finding out for the first time in some of these games we've played for 20 years, practically. And, uh, you know, it's like, well, why didn't I know this when I was younger? Well, if you've never played some of these games that we're reviewing now and you're listening before doing so, really, the more you know, the better. Maybe you'll have a better experience starting out than we did. So, yeah, that's the whole game for the most part. Uh, the different various things that you run into and the the weapons there's 100 unique rooms that you run in through which uh i thought was pretty content packed I, I gotta say playing the launch titles only for our first season you kind of get a sense of how careful developers were being at the start of this next console generation with how little some of these games tend to have in them and uh with how plain the graphics scheme seems to be getting a little bit further into the xbox's lifespan uh where as this game came out in 2003 you really see the potential being utilized with just how much there is in this game alone uh the xbox definitely had a lot more to offer when it first came out you know this game does a good job of showing that this game has a great theme and it shows it off very well with a Highly diverse amount of different textures and the expansive gameplay character list. They were able to just put everything into it was a treat in itself. And, you know, Rare definitely shows how good they are at making games with this one. As I said in the beginning of this episode, I believe one of Rare's last good games or great games, I should say. That's a good way to put it. We don't know what they have in store for us in the future still, but, you know, I actually have never played Cameo, and I don't think I ever played the Perfect Dark Zero game either. Oh, I played it, yes. Not bad, but not, like, great. Hmm. Uh, what's your What's your thoughts on the gameplay, sir? My thoughts on the gameplay are... The, the game was a very fun game to play. It's actually very interesting to, to discover new aspects to a room or things like that, that uh, the game just kept delivering a new challenge for you to, to persevere and beat it. The challenges that are set up for each room also really help keep the edge of the game focused on kind of like just the game aspect. It's like pl- you're playing a mini game on each room, which I think helps really boost that 
involvement that you want to just keep playing the game. You almost want to see what challenges there are. You're trying to almost see what can you do to prevent the Grim Reaper from showing up. And I think that offers a great characteristic of this game. And that the art style, as you had said, well done. It's cartoonish, but it's modern. It's like Scooby-Doo. I mean, you're going to... You're going to watch Scooby-Doo no matter how old you are. (laughs) It's just kind of like that. Just a great game from front to back with challenges and all this stuff. You really just can't really summarize this game all too well. That's why (laughs) this episode sounds like it's going to be a long episode. Because this game is just hard to pack everything neatly into a nice little one-hour episode. And really, it's just a gem. Yeah, well, I agree. This, uh... This game had a very diverse set of challenges that changed it up enough to where it kept you on your toes. Not really any one was the same. The diversity was just so, so immense. Uh, I really loved how they set up this game. Mm-hmm. The randomization of the health was also another cool factor where whatever room you went into, you had a different amount of health. That really played on the game as well. You know, you had to kind of get, uh, you had to kind of get strategic with your play and in some cases you really didn't have the chance to because there was also a timer on top of a challenge Mm -hmm. and then if there wasn't a timer you had very little health and you had a lot of enemies to take care of while you were looking for the key that unlocked the door or you had to find a special enemy that had the key for the door it was like one after the other and then on top of that some of these rooms you completed the main challenge and then before you got to the end of the level there was another challenge that just came out of nowhere, you know, and it threw you that curveball. This game really did a good job, like you said, of keeping you on your toes. The amount of weapons that you had at your disposal, the clever implementation of some of them, like the zombie arm that could be used once it became dislodged. The intelligent enemies were also another thing. You know, you weren't just defeating a bunch of programmed, scripted, robotic creatures. They they felt like they had a actual purpose. They felt like they were something that you actually were fighting against, not just cannon fodder to your merciless beatdown of household items. They really did have something going on in the background. Like the uh, the skeletons, you know, they had a personality of their own. The zombies had a personality of their own. The imps and so on and so forth. They were their own entity and that made it all the more special. So it, it added that extra amount of depth. And the character development in the game is another thing I'd like to mention as well. You get to meet Mr. Fiddlesworth. You get to meet Babs Buff Brass. You got Crevens the butler throughout the entire game. Ma Soups the cook. Mr. Ribs. They all help you on your journey. Not only get your girlfriend back, cure her of becoming a ghoul, but at the same time, freeing the children that are trapped inside the mansion and escaping altogether. The the game has an amazingly well put together story and system of characters that just ties it all together. You know, this game doesn't seem to really have any loose ends. It doesn't feel rushed. It's literally a perfect balance. And it's exactly what I would expect of any AAA studio or AAA title. Yeah, that's a really good way to describe this game. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So uh, anything else to add? I think we we covered quite the yeah quite the game so yeah Yeah, that was that was pretty good so all right well then we are on to our next segment (laughs) get ready for x marks the spot all gone 
where we dig into the Easter eggs and secrets. <laughs> All right, so for X marks the spot, I believe you were pretty excited to uh, dig up the secrets and Easter eggs that this game had to offer, which there is a lot. Oh, yeah. This game is chock full of it. Um, the first thing I would like to start off with is that this game actually doesn't have cheat codes, contrary to belief. So that may be a little bit of a different kind of dial that we've been used to. But going into our second part is that this game pretty much Easter eggs the absolute heck out of the player. Every room in this game, there's always something referring to a game from the past in Rare's history or maybe just something that is kind of funny that's in the background. There's always something fun and new waiting in each level and i think that uh there's too much to list essentially is that's what we've we've concurred with is that you can't sit there and list off everything because there's just too much but rest assured we will go over some of the most important stuff so going into one of the most in-depth parts of the game is the fact that when you are playing the game each level has a rare bonus book for every five books you collect, you unlock a challenge in the bonus challenge mode. The bonus challenge mode allows you to compete in a bronze, silver, gold, and platinum rating to achieve art gallery in the gallery section of the options menu. And these challenges are really fun. So each of the challenges, Excalibur, tell us about these challenges. Alrighty. Okay, the challenges, there are 20 uh, starting out. That you get by finding the 100 rare books. There's one in every single level that you come across. But it is usually hidden in either plain sight or in an object or an enemy. The way that they hide the books is uh, pretty diverse. As you will find if you seek out all 100 books to unlock all 20 of the challenges. Now per challenge, completing the goal, you can get a bronze, silver, gold, or platinum medal which is what we talked about before, the requirement to unlock any of the items in the gallery. The challenges go by the name, starting with challenge one, Billiard Room Bust Up, where in this challenge, you have to defeat as many skeletons as you can in the amount of time allotted. Challenge two would be Bring Out the Imps. In this challenge, you have to survive without being hit for as long as possible. In challenge three, you encounter the super duper super scary shock which basically is one of those super scary shocks but with an extremely long combination of buttons that you have to press in order to evade being scared or frightened as they call it challenge four would be friday night at the embassy basically in this challenge you need to dispatch all the enemies or as many as you can before fainting on the dance floor of the embassy ballroom Challenge 5 would be soak a zombie. In this challenge, you need to use the water squirt gun to dispatch as many zombies as possible in the time frame that you're given. Challenge 6, a touch of frost, is a pretty unique challenge where you can only use melee weapons or household items to dispatch your foes. If you use any other type of weapon, you instantly fail the challenge. And however many that you've dispatched up to that point counts toward your total score. In challenge seven, poor old Fiddlesworth, you have to defend Mr. Fiddlesworth from an onslaught of imps, which uh, is rather comical. And uh, as long as Mr. Fiddlesworth goes without being touched by any of those foes, 
counts toward what medal you get. Challenge eight is who's the daddy, where you must defeat as many mummies as possible in the time allotted. Mummies, that's funny. Yeah, who's the daddy? <laughs> uh, challenge nine is probably one of my favorite challenges, which would be smash the study, buddy. This challenge requires you to cause as much damage to the room that you're in as possible in the time that you're allotted. Challenge 10 is Chop Socky Wacky, where in this challenge, you need to defeat as many imps as you can in only 10 attacks. And these would be ninja imps. Challenge 11, Amber Wants a Kiss. In this challenge, you have to defeat Amber in her ghoulish form within a certain time frame to achieve the platinum medal. Challenge 12 would be Hey Big Swinger. Hey Big Spender. I mean, what? <laughs> Just a swinging. Burnout crash vibe. Oh, yeah. In this challenge, you have to dispatch as many skeletons as you can with only one health. Challenge 13 is gone to pot. In this challenge, you have to defeat as many of the vampire chickens as you can without breaking any objects. It's more challenging than you think. Challenge 14 would be kick them quick. In this challenge, it's a unique twist where you get to play as Amber, Cooper's girlfriend. In this challenge, you're in Fiddlesworth Cottage. The enemy here is the Flying Imp. You have to down as many Flying Imps as you can before the time runs out. Challenge 15 is Take Out the Trash. In this challenge, you need to defeat as many spiders as you can in just nine attacks. Oh, wow. Yes. That one's pretty difficult. Actually, the, the platinum medal for that one is 30 spiders in nine attacks. Jesus. Uh, challenge 16. Another one where you get to play Amber. is called Dirty Laundry. In this challenge, you must defeat as many ninja imps as you can with the soda shooting gun with only 10 seconds on the clock. Now, throughout this level, there are hidden 10-second Mama Soups cans that you can collect to increase the amount of time that you have left on the clock. So time management is key. Plus, your health bar can be decreased pretty quickly by the attacks from these enemies. It kind of takes a little bit of strategy. They get really progressively harder as it goes. The next challenge is challenge 17, which would be catch the cowards. All right, in this challenge, you must dispatch as many imps as you can in the allotted time given. But the twist in this challenge would be the imps are constantly running away from you instead of coming up to attack you. Yeah, challenge really, really, really cool. Yeah, it is kind of a different take. Uh, challenge 18, bedtime gory. <laughs> Uh, this is another challenge where you play Amber. In this challenge, you're in the Baron's Quarters, and you must defeat as many ghoulies as you can in the allotted time. Without killing any imps. Uh, yes. In this challenge, you have to defeat as many ghouls as possible in the time frame allotted, but the special twist in this one is you're not allowed to kill any imps. Challenge 19. Who's still the daddy? Once again, you play as Cooper, and this time, the ghoul is to defeat as many mummies as you can in only 10 hits. Wielding a candle, you'll have to strike multiple mummies in one hit in order to have a chance at completing this challenge. So strategy plays a key element, but at the same time, you're also against the clock. It's a pretty stressful challenge. And then the last one, which is pretty cool, challenge 20 would be Don't Fear the Reaper, which is also a node to the Blue Oyster Cult song. In this challenge, you have to dodge the Reaper for as long as you possibly can, with a new one emerging every 10 seconds. 
So basically you could have up to, I mean, given how long you can last, uh, an infinite amount of Reapers on the screen at one time. Another interesting fact about the Reaper is the longer the Reaper is on the screen, the faster his movement speed is. So from the time that the first Reaper spawns and stays on screen, he becomes progressively faster. So it gets harder and harder and harder as the older Reapers become faster with the amount of time that you are in this level without having been killed by them yet. Uh, This challenge by far is the hardest challenge. And then lastly, the ultimate Pied La Resistance is challenge 21. And this challenge is only accessible in the event that you unlock the gold medal or higher on all the challenges in the game before this one. So it's pretty difficult to unlock this one and goes along with how Rare likes to extend games by basically giving you that good old Billy Mays, but wait, there's more kind of attitude. Um, they, they kind of have a way of extending the gameplay. And in this case, very much so. If you're a skilled player or like a challenge, you'll definitely like this one. And this one's name would be Play It Again, Son. In this challenge, you play as Amber and you're tasked with going through the entire game again. But as Amber, the definite catch to this one is you only have 10 health. There is no randomizer for all the levels. You only have 10 health per room and no mama soups to go with it. You are strictly just playing this game with no help. You can still use the weapons hidden throughout the levels um, if the challenges permit it, or if you can strategically cheat the challenges by getting the Reaper in and having him defeat your main enemy before sneaking off. So yeah, this is definitely quite the challenge if you're up for it. And uh, no matter what, you get a platinum medal for beating it. Yes, because this is quite the daunting task. Beating that 21st challenge mode, there are four prizes for completing it. The first one is you get the E3 2001 video. You get an extra deleted scene, a, another picture in the gallery book, and then last but not least, your entire HUD. Anytime you play the game from that point on, turns gold. So what else we got here in the uh, X marks the spot? We do have some bonus trivia. This game, starting with Baron Von Gool. Baron Von Gool was originally conceived as a menacing evil character who would turn into a fiery demon at the end of the game. One of the artists working on the game thought that was rather generic and instead sketched the Baron in a homemade plane. It was at that point the Baron Von Gool evolved into the World War II plane-obsessed lunatic that he is today. Some cut content. The Red Snake seen in the unlockable Missing in Action page that shows unused characters actually did make it into the game. Because he can be seen in the mansion's walled garden as a fountain with one of the Baron's prisoners stuck in his mouth. Other characters weren't so lucky. They were going to turn up in a museum room that was going to be placed in the game that allowed you to see all of the cut characters uh, in the mansion. They complained that they weren't in the main game when the player approached him. This room got cut out of the game as well. Uh, Dr. Crackpot, the insane genius riding the giant mechanical legs, was also going to be an original boss character during the, this Dr. Crackpot's lab. Crackpot's latest creation, Frankenstein, was then going to get up from the lab table that it was strapped to and begin to attack the player. Once it was defeated, Dr. Crackpot would have attacked the player himself, but for whatever reason, this boss battle was cut, likely from the difficulty the room presented. All right, here's some fun references. 
As per usual, for Rare games, there are many references to previous games. The title sequence has images from 20-year-old Spectrum games. The games room has lots of posters from 8-bit games when Rare were called Ultimate. Pictures and statues and paintings of other characters abound, including Banjo and Kazooie and the Skeleton Witch Doctor. There's also paintings of Jiggies and Hive outside the cottage. The Bag of Flower has established 1984 written on the side. References the start of Ultimate and also a power-up from Donkey Kong 64. The fire imps that appear in this game also appear in another game called Conquered Bad Fur Day. Ah, yes. There are some very similar musical themes to those appearing in Banjo-Kazooie. One level has the bear and bird exploring a haunted house with ghost-infested painting and living furniture. It could be argued that Grab by the Ghoulies is an expansion of that very level. The Storybook. The sign seen in the Storybook opening currently reads Ghoulsville in the Gloom. Originally, it read Need in the Nuts which was to be the title of the sequel if one was ever made. However, Microsoft didn't like the sign, so it had to be changed. So there's our fun trivia for this game. Very interesting stuff. I would have liked to have seen the museum room that was cut. That would have actually fit pretty well with the way that this game was structured. You know, the diversity of the rooms that were in this game, I think that would have been a very fitting one to have added. Uh, I really don't understand with how much they fit into this game that they wound up cutting one that would be as interesting as that. But uh, I guess we'll never know. Because it definitely wasn't due to hardware limitations, I wouldn't think. That's probably just game length. Yeah. Too much know. just too much stuff in the game. They probably just thought it was too long. I think more than likely there was a there was probably quite the fight to have the game as expansive as it was, you know, when it was finished. Let's see, did you already speak your stuff? <laughs> yeah, I think I think we're actually ready to move on to our next segment. All right. Well, I've got nothing else. And if you don't either, then uh yeah. All right. Let's move on to the next segment. <laughs> Here is the X Games mode. Our personal tales of triumph, adrenaline pumping gameplay, and sweat inducing rampages. Okay, the most epic portion of this entire podcast, the X Games mode. Oh, yes. Well, Excalibur, I think you should be the first to tell us your most heavy anxiety moment in this game. <laughs> okay, I think um, I would be able to use both the Crackpot's Lab, which is about two or three rooms, I think, before you get to Chapter 4, which would be the penultimate boss fight of this game. First, explaining this room, you run into Dr. Crackpot in the story in a cutscene. Um, he pulls out his ray gun and attempts to make you a ghoul as well, as uh, he also did to Amber earlier. And what you do is you stick your finger into the barrel of the ray gun and the ray gun explodes on him rendering him completely helpless and to which he remarks would be a critical design flaw <laughs> and at that point he turns tail and runs off and when you regain your control of cooper the camera teleports over to a freezer that which three jesse and clyde's spawn out of and then at that point you are tasked with 
trying to find a key hidden somewhere in an object in the room, also trying to find a key hidden in an enemy, and then lastly, you're not allowed to defeat any of the skeletons that emerge from when you break an object. Your health in the beginning of this room is 30, which might seem like quite a bit, but it's barely enough to get you by if you're unfortunate enough to be caught into the attacks of one of the three Jesse and Clydes that are prancing around this room. Now, mind you, earlier I did mention that these are faster than you and have very devastating attacks that are extremely fast and that are almost unable to be dodged. Unless you counter them before they make contact with you, you're not going anywhere. You're pretty much done. Uh, basically, what happens is you have to find the first key, which I don't even remember where it is. I think it's hidden in the electrode, uh, unless that's where the book is hidden. And then the second key would be hidden inside of one of the worms that you have to bust out of the large like uh, liquid tubes near the exit. But the real challenge is the Jesse and Clydes because you can't really move freely around the room once you've aggravated them by coming within close proximity of them. Uh, they will chase you down and hunt you relentlessly until they get you and throw you across the room. And then once again, if you're in their line of sight, but instead of being in close proximity, they will then hunt you down and get you again. And it's rather fast that they do. So it's it's... It's definitely a challenging room. It's actually one of the hardest rooms in the entire game. Um, this one you probably will retry a bunch of times and kind of ultimately takes some luck to get past. All right. And then going on to the final boss fight of the game, the Baron boss battle. This one right here is an X Games moment for sure, uh, because you can get so close, but then just have a couple of unfortunate things happen and it all just goes away especially with the fact that the baron's attacks take out 10 health per hit and you only start out with 50 health against that kind of an attack you can see how quickly that can cause your demise because not only do you have to face waves of enemies but you also have to dodge his constant barrage of attacks which can come at any moment and they are very fast and precise he covers a very large attack area with his he covers a very large attack area with his plane whenever he does attack you and it's very hard to dodge you kind of have to time it just right or be behind a specific object which i found the easiest way to combat his kamikaze like strategy was to stand in front of one of the bedposts in the room and as soon as he went to strike you walk behind the bedpost and every time he would crash into that and it would stop him from being able to go any further and you wouldn't really have to dodge his attack. Um, but ultimately, this challenge was really one that got your blood pumping because it was such a long multi-phase. Uh, it, it was such a long multi-phase boss battle that you could get nearly to the end and almost have him knocked out. And one of the enemies would pull something cheap and it would end up knocking your health down just enough to where you might have nine health or eight health. And just so happens you got hit by the Baron and that's it. Game over. You got to start over from the beginning of that level again. It's not like a lot of games where you get into phase two or the halfway point of the boss battle and that's a new checkpoint for you. No, you start from the beginning of the boss battle every time you faint. So it definitely presents quite a challenge. I find myself 
sometimes getting frustrated to the point or flustered to the point where I start fumbling over the controls, like I explained that I would tend to do when I was stressed out uh, in some of these rooms. And uh, that definitely does point toward your demise if you do breast up with the controls. So I would say those two were probably my biggest X Games moments. I didn't really find the chapter five time constraint being too much of a challenge because by that time I had learned how to cheat the game or, you know, use the game's challenge system against itself by just instead of having to waste the time to complete a challenge, I would just summon the Reaper and have the Reaper take care of my dirty work uh, and then sneak off through the exit before he was able to get to me. Um, It did get down to the wire to an extent, but ultimately I think I was able to complete the challenge with just about two or three minutes still on the clock. So with a little bit of rush and hustle with some strategic cheating the game and summoning the Reaper, Chapter five wouldn't be too difficult. So for me, it wasn't too much of an X Games moment, but you're definitely against the clock. So it kind of is. What do you got, Soft Mike? All right. So for me, I think one of the first things I'd like to mention is just the fact that this game brilliantly sets up every room. As we've mentioned, the developers, they wanted to pace you in such a way that not every room was super difficult or any way, you know, that would like, especially as you get toward late game. But it also paces you in between moments, especially like it's chapter finales with uh, I think the X game moment are really just every finale. This this game presents figuring out how to beat each one. Chapter one being the haunted door, not really a hard challenge whatsoever, but a unique enemy, something you would never, you know, you would never have expected to fight a door with a punching knob and that the only way you can beat it is with a throwable object. But that still, it still gave you those moments where it was like, how do I get in here and do it? How do I, you know, figure it out? Where you actually do have moments where you're freaking out. I think any moment the the Reaper shows up on screen is the next game moment. Oh, definitely. You know, because (laughs) you're up against a logarithmically increasing speed (laughs) Reaper with whoever it touches will instantly make you faint. Yes. And, you know, his reach, he's he's got a very long reach. It's hard to make connection with him with an object that is swingable. It's more or less you have to throw an object at him to knock him down before anything, because even if you swing at him with a swingable object, there's a high chance that his reach is broad enough that he'll still touch it and kill you before you touch him. Yes. Yeah. I also agree with the uh, fact that you had issues with uh, the Dr. Crackpot room. I could see that room being an absolute nightmare. I'm, I'm going to take a guess and say you probably got fainted many times. Well, yeah, that one took uh, that one took a fair amount of retries. I wouldn't say like Dead or Alive 3 because, you know, those challenges that we faced in those levels were so quick. If, if we were dispatched, it was within five or ten seconds. Um, whereas this room, you know, it took you a while to get through and you had a lot more available so you could get creative so in this sense i did have to retry this room quite a few times like i said but it was nowhere near the amount of tries of like dead or alive three would have been um the second time you go through the farmyard that could also be considered another x games mode moment because there are seven of those super scary shocks in that level where the like mangled hand pops out of the ground and grabs you Mm. That entire level is nothing but whoa, ho, 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 ho. 
<laughs> wherever you go, you just hear whoa, ho, ho, ho. And you don't know where oh, it's going to pop out of the ground and grab you. Yeah, that'd be uh, a, a lot. And that's literally the only enemy in the entire level. <laughs> there are some challenging sections, but really, you're pretty well adept to playing this game and probably know how to stretch its strategies a little bit. So from the end of chapter three, you really don't have any other X Games moments. Yeah. You've practically seen everything this game has to offer. Um, there are different scenarios, obviously, that are offered, but pretty much, you know, you've you've seen it all and you've ultimately, hopefully, had a good experience throughout the entire process of completing this game. So it didn't really get boring. It's just the challenges aren't as harsh because you're better than you were when you started. So, yeah, that for me, Dr. Crackpot's Lab and Baron Von Ghoul's boss fight would be my ultimate X Games moments. And then uh, I guess for you, the hardest rooms in the game and the chapter ending boss fights would be yours. Wouldn't that be accurate to say, Soft Mike? Yeah. Okay, well, that sounds good. Uh, do you have anything else to add for X Games mode? No, that's it. All right. And that means we're on to our final segment. <laughs> Let's get X-rated. <laughs> Where we rate the game based on our evaluation of 10 core gaming elements. <laughs> Okay. I forgot to add Rabbi the Ghoulies to the final rankings list. <laughs> All right. It is in my final rankings. Uh, who went first last? I think it was... I always forget. Yeah, I think it was me. I, yeah, think, it was me. I think you're right. Okay, so I'll go first. Uh, it'd be great if I had my scorecard out and ready. There we go. Okay, so for X-Rated... We are going to start off with you, Excalibur. Tell us what you rated this game. Okay, so starting off with graphics for Grab by the Ghoulies. I gave this game an 8. I think Whoop. this... What? Ring digger! <laughs> wait, no, wait, no, never mind. What? Ah, uh, I thought it was the same score. I, I thought it was very similar. Okay, never mind. Scratch what I said. Well then, I gave this game an 8. I think this game had the kind of polish that we've learned to expect from Rare pulling off impressive feats of graphics from past games and continuing to do so very strongly with this game. Representative in the graphic art style and the diversity of the textures, they really pulled off a very cool-looking game as well as a technically great-looking game with the way that the shadows interact and the shine effects that are on certain objects. You can actually see a glare of a like a glossy finish to certain objects i think uh everything played together very well everything's modeled very well and the detail that goes into the modeling of the individual components in the game that you can just pick off of a shelf or a ground or a couch or a wall and use as a weapon everything just was done so well and you can really tell what's what things aren't really muddy even when they're almost the same color you can tell where they begin and where they end. And, you know, you don't, you don't have textures bleeding into other ones. I, I think that uh, the way that they presented the game in a graphical standpoint was done extremely well, especially for this console, which isn't going to say too much because this console was able to do quite a bit. But, uh, yeah, overall, the, the look of this game is just fantastic. Uh, moving on to difficulty, 
I gave this game an eight. Ooh, hold on. Ring yeah. dagger. All right. At least we, we nailed it together. At least we agreed on difficulty because we usually we usually don't see eye to eye on that. And uh typically by a lot. Yes. But uh yes, uh this game's difficulty progressed very much like you would want it to. It only ramped up when it needed to, and it prepared you for the challenges ahead amply before you got to them, explaining and going into careful detail what you must do and how to approach it. I really think that the way that the enemies that you face as you progress through the game were well selected and presented just the amount of challenge that you needed. You know, you you weren't facing off against Jesse and Clyde's in just you know the first 10 or 15 levels. They saved those for a little bit later. And when they brought them to you, they made sure that they ran down everything you needed to know. It really was a fully featured game when it came to difficulty. And uh, I think it deserved a very high score based on the fact that you had the ability to learn about what you needed to do right when you got to it. And everything had an introduction. There was really no surprises in that in that uh, there were no surprises in that front where, you know, you, you were thrown into a room and weren't given any direction. And I, I think this game did a very good job of making sure that nothing was too difficult for you, but everything did challenge you and challenged you exactly as it should. Uh, all right. Next category would be AI. And I gave it an eight. Wow. I believed that this game's AI was extremely intelligent for at least the time. Um, they were missing some elements from other games that are later in the life of the uh, original Xbox. But for this game being you know, kind of a, a kiddie title and geared towards such to a degree. It offered a fairly intelligent and diversely intelligent cast of characters or enemies, as you would call them. The skeletons, they would stop in the middle of battle. And when they had a light bulb over their head, they were thinking about what object that was closest to them that they could use to fight you with. And once they figured out what was the closest object within their reach, the light bulb lit up. They jumped with excitement and went and grabbed that object and proceeded to beat you to a bloody pulp with it. <laughs> you know, um, the the zombies had their own form of intelligence. They would aggro their own kind if they were attacked by their own kind. The zombies had their own programmed intelligence where they they had their own personality. And that goes along with AI, in my opinion, not only being efficient to kill the player as quickly and as uh, efficiently as possible, but also at the same time, having their own personality that goes a long way too. And it also creates its own environment in the game. It kind of, it's more of an immersive touch. It's a, it's an immersive element to the game. So AI got a lot of credit in that regard. As far as the rest of the characters go, they, they continue the same exact trend of having their own personality and their own way of dealing with things. Uh, I, I really can't say that they didn't, you know, take care in every category so far. And AI is one of them that didn't get left out. The single player experience. I gave that an eight. All right. An eight. Eight. Oh, yes. We we nailed that one. <laughs> Heck yeah. Um, where this game gets an eight and doesn't achieve a higher score for single player, I would say it kind of dragged on a little bit. Not too much, but a little bit. You can only change the same game up so much. Uh, I, I, but at the same time, I would have also liked to have seen a little bit of less backtracking 
than there was in this game. Really, they could have added more diversity with the levels that they cut if they had given you less to backtrack through. So that really would be my only gripe. I don't think it hurts this game to have all that, but like I said, you know, the same old, same old kind of does get old. Yeah. But overall, the story was done very well. It was told exquisitely well, actually, you know, and the plot twists definitely kept you going. And this game gave you goals to attain that were really simple goals to attain as well. You had to go here and do this. And that was it. The game, although it was kind of long, I kind of enjoyed every bit of it either way. But it is just that backtracking really that killed it for me i guess design i gave this game a 10 10 oh, oh dude we're we're nailing these together <laughs> awesome uh this game's art style without a doubt hands down goes down as one of the best um carried through themes that i've ever known in fact i think the creators said that they set out to create a game where there was not a single straight line in it and they without a doubt definitely carried through with that goal in mind as everything is just so cartoonishly set up and designed so intricately you know with the amount of different objects in this game furniture and just how immersing the environments all feel they feel real even though there could be no further from real than they are uh each room has its theme to it that feels exactly like you would expect it to feel it just it has a homey feeling and it's one of the things that i find that makes it so comfortable so comfy and homey to to run through the halls and different levels of this game uh the design is just so great and it shows in everything each character like i've already said multiple times is just diverse it's its own character that adds to the immersion of this game the the levels i can't stop talking about them they've just done so well the the fashion of the game you know it's linear nature uh i think that did also drive down the single player a little bit but you know you can't ask for much more out of a game the rare is known for this kind of thing and wouldn't expect any less rare definitely knocked it out of the park again all right controls i gave this game an eight controls functioned very well and that's ultimately what really led up to its score plus the fact that they tried to innovate the control scheme that honestly would be tried and true by this point uh and they although it was a little wonky with the aiming system it did pull it off quite well this game is 100 percent playable it's almost as if the control scheme isn't swept isn't swapped around like it is for most other games the the transition was pretty painless and seamless with the occasional confusion here and there because, you know, you, your brain's trained to use a different control scheme for the same exact kind of gameplay than this one presents, but it was pulled off so well, I think it deserved that just extra bit of scoring because of its polish. It did lose out points, though, on how they tried to reinvent the wheel and it didn't quite work out as perfect as it could have. Features. I gave this game an eight. I think the diversity of this game just stands out. It doesn't offer you too much, but the challenges have such a way of extending the gameplay that it kind of feels like it is quite a feature packed game with the fact that you can collect a hundred different rare books. 
hidden throughout every single level of the game that unlock 20 different challenges that ultimately unlock another challenge that's basically to play the entire game through again, which uh, I don't see too many people would want to do that. But it also gives you the ability to switch between not only the entire storybook to replay, it gives you the ability to play through an entire chapter or an entire scene. That level of intricacy isn't found in very many games, which is a nice feature to add in. Although this game does lack features, the quality of the features that are in this game does to me impact that score. Replayability. I gave this game a 6. With this game's replayability, it got a little bit higher than above average because this game is good enough to garner that nostalgia kick. It's a game that you would want to come back to. Granted, not, you know, very often, but once every now and then kind of like, man, I want to play that game. Maybe, maybe once a year, maybe once every few years. Either way, this game is good enough after one playthrough that I think you would probably want to play it again. It's not one that's forgettable. Soundtrack. I gave this game an eight. It scored very high, mainly because the theme was played in so many different ways, and it always went with the exact mood of the room at the time. And then also the other tracks that were made that were specific to certain enemies or challenges. They really did help to ramp up the excitement or the stress in the situation. I, I really think they did a great job of theming things for the horror aspect of this game and making it also fun and harmless. Overall, I, I couldn't be happier with a completely custom soundtrack that was made from scratch for this game. It's also good enough to not become repetitive. I could listen to the soundtrack quite a bit, and it, I don't think it would annoy me or get old as easily as a lot of other ones could. And then lastly, we have Storyline. I gave this game an 8. Bingo. Hey. At least we nailed the last one. <laughs> as Mr. Fiddlesworth would say, um, the story was very well told. I've already gone over this plenty of times. The way that they presented it, it just flowed. And the storybook way that they decided to tell it was even better. It was a great way to break in the next generation of Rare Player on the Xbox console. You know, our generation got our first taste of Rare on the Nintendo. My first, I think my first Rare game I've ever played was probably Donkey Kong Country. Yeah, my first Rare experience was the uh, NES, Donkey Kong Country as well. Yeah. Okay. So really, uh, my my compliments to the story would be that it's a great experience for the player and one that's wholesome and inviting with plenty of immersion. You've got characters that aren't easily forgettable, and that's a big deal. You know, it's not only coming up with something out of your mind, but also making it unforgettable for the masses. And it's it's definitely something that takes some magic. And that's something that this game definitely has. So tally all that up. This game scores a grand total of 80, giving it a grade A. Pretty good. Oh, yeah, I definitely thought so. Um, and for my final ranking, this game will be in my new position one, knocking Oddworld Munch's Odyssey to position two. Very good. I thought so. <laughs> what do you got for us, Soft Mike? All right. So for me, graphics was a seven out of ten. I thought this game offered unique graphics with its non-straight edges, uh, and I think it nailed the look it was supposed to go for, a look that doesn't emphasize realism, 
but emphasize the cartoonish look that makes it a game that, no matter what, is timeless. So after that, we have difficulty. I gave an 8, as we agreed on before. Uh, I felt like this game did a great job, the best job thus far in any of the games we've played, of establishing a difficulty that was fair to the player and challenging at the same time. Yes. Nothing was so damaging to your mental health (laughs) that it made you want to quit the game consistently made you want to keep playing it and no matter what the game threw at you each challenge created a sort of mini step in each room not only just for the game but just each room you never knew what what exactly was going to happen you know what? i think that's the charm of this game you're right about that uh this game actually is the first one we've played so far that didn't give us that breaking point that um it, you know it it got to that point to where it was just so difficult or mind-numbing that we didn't know if we could finish it this game yeah definitely pulled off a perfectly balanced difficulty system yes uh ai i gave this game a seven hmm. uh i thought the ai was also really smart uh very well designed fun to play with is what i would say each creature had their own specific intelligence level. I feel like the only way the AI lost out was on purpose. That way they could be beat. You can't have AI too smart because then you can't beat the game. So I feel like this is a really good score for the AI to showcase that they are intelligent enough to keep you playing the game, but not intelligent enough to beat you at your own game of chess. Mm. Single player experience. I gave this game an 8. As we have agreed on, uh, single-player experience was a very fun and intriguing journey. From start to finish, you want to keep playing, and each time you can, you enter a new room, getting set up with a new sort of challenge or just the, the sheer possibility of something crazy happening is what kind of pushed you through and motivated you to keep playing. You wanted to get to those major goal points in each each part of the chapters. And each time you collected one major component of it, getting back to the next point really is what pushes you to continue. So I think overall, the single player experience reflected almost the ideal experience that you'd want. Design, as we also agreed, a 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, this game is literally screamed design. Rare went into this completely based off a name and they did well beyond well really not many games can come out looking this good considering the way most games are made this is a game nostalgically going to capture the look of any game you can think of to your childhood that made you remember you're going to remember the rooms every room that you went through you can remember each one if i told excalibur you remember the wood, the woodshed room? Yeah. Yes. It's it's almost it's imprinted in your brain. It's just so unique. It's, yes. So that's that's why this this game is so good because nothing is forgettable. Everything is memorable, and you will pretty much apply that knowledge as you go through the game. It keeps stepping it up. So this game is a flawlessly designed game. Controls gave this game a five. Ooh. The only reason why I gave it a five yeah, is due to the unusual control scheme of switching the thumbstick and the triggers with camera controls and fighting techniques. I feel like if this game had switched that up 
or had a selectable control scheme, uh. that would have made the game have a higher control score because that was really about the only thing lacking about the controls. The controls were simple and anyone could learn them, which is great for the style game. So I think the only other thing was learning that the thumbstick could be held in a certain direction, which would allow you, uh, if you held it, could continue a combo of attacks, which is not something we actually knew you could do until we read the manual. And every time I we do these podcasts, I would say, we read the manuals after we play the game, and we realize how dumb we are. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> there's a lot of things in the controls that you sort of miss out on. That I think this game would have, yeah, it would have uh, increased controls categorical score features i gave this game a five the only reason why i gave this game a five on the features is because i felt like this game lacked certain things in a single player experience that we've experienced in games that we've played thus far the bonus challenges mode is a major plus but you only have so many of those and quite frankly i feel like there could have been a lot more but thankfully the game does give you some great feature saving because the game saves where you are uh, when you play that specific challenge. So no matter what, if you wanted to pick it up a week from now, you could go back, hit that challenge, and it will pick up right from the room you left off. So there's no worry about restarting. You don't have to do it in one playthrough, which is a good thing that Rare did that. So replayability. I gave this game a three. Uh, pretty much the, the lowest score for this game is this. And the only reason why that is, is because once you've played the game, I don't think you would want to go back uh, very quickly to it. I think there's going to be a certain, well, I mean, with any game, you're going to be like, I've accomplished, I beat this game. I'm not going to come back until maybe a couple years or later from now. I don't think anyone would constantly play this game over and over and over. You're going to switch to the next game you have in your collection Swap it into the disc drive, and you're gonna go ahead, and you're gonna, and you're gonna start playing a new game. This game is nostalgic, but it's not replayably nostalgic. No, I think that it would just offer the ability of maybe five years down the road, if you were to somehow dust off your disc uh, collections and you saw the game, and you're like, you know what, this game was pretty fun. Let me start up, or uh, just the fact that you are just that bored, I think, would create that desire. So, soundtrack, I gave this game a 6. I don't think that's a bad score at all. I think it just, to me, the soundtrack accompanied the game well. It suited everything that would be desirable for this style of game. Storyline, as we agreed on, an 8. Yes. This game had a very interesting dialogue system that, Basically, as we mentioned, was kind of just like put into a a storyboard and you got to read as if you were reading a comic. That sort of style appeals to a lot of people. You only skip it once you've played the game. So other than that, I think that's uh, that covers up everything I have to rate. So tallying it up, final score is a 67 grade B. Ooh. Hey, that's not bad. That's that hot. That's low. That's it's in the middle of the B's. But even though it's got this B, this final rank drops by the number three, test drive off-road off into four, and throws grabbed by the ghoulies right under NASCAR Heat 2002. Wow, that's impressive. 
Yeah. I mean, for NASCAR Heat to uh, remain so high on the list. I remember how much fun we had with that game. It is very true. Uh, the lack of multiplayer does hurt a lot of titles. Um, I'm primarily a single player person, so that's probably why this game just bode very much more well with me. Um, I ain't going to get you wrong. I love single player games because multiplayer was never my thing. Nope. But I, th- I think multiplayer is only a fun acquisition when you're doing it with people you can play the game with that you like. Yeah. Like if I, me, if I, if I go online and play lobbies of multiplayer with random strangers, I almost loathe that idea. <laughs> Because the fact is, you're playing with people, random skill sets. You don't know who's cheating. You don't know who's who's doing what. Everyone wants to do their own thing. No one wants to work together. And it just turns into a mess. I mean, I think NASCAR Heat, one of the reasons why it was ranked so high, it's just because we were... We were launching launching rocks out of the front of our cars in multiplayer. I forgot about that. That was so funny. (laughs) And I think that just that joy, I don't think I experienced that with any other game. Uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2X being the number one. The reason why that being was just because there was so much customization. Yeah. For an Xbox title that that is really what tops the cake was just that that was the most customizable game thus far. Oh, yeah. You you truly hit the nail squarely on the head with uh, how you you know, describe that game. You could literally tweak anything on it. So I see why it ranks so high. And it's no doubt that, you know, my list ranks uh, where it does for me based on just how much I enjoy the games that I played. And I kind of take, I tend to base it more on a technical standpoint of how much the studio cared about putting the game together well, instead of just making a game. And I, I think that so far, Part of the reason why this game wound up being uh, number one for me uh, not only is my likeliness to come back to the game in the future, as I've stated before, is part of the reason why I put a game where I do in my final ranking. It's also because I know how much care that Rare puts into making their games and how meticulously they make their games. So, you know, not only does that show, but you can tell. And... You know, that this game deserves the number one spot to me because it's just so well made that it's not easily forgettable. And it's one that I definitely will come back to, whether it be 10 years from now, five years from now, I will come back to this game. And it's definitely one that whenever I, you know, have somebody get a new Xbox or something like that, I'll always suggest this game to them as uh, definitely a title to check out for this Xbox library or you know maybe if they have a modern console and they're thinking about getting the rare replay um this is definitely a reason to buy that all right any other that was final comments nothing i can think of that was a long long episode dog. yeah there's gonna be a lot of editing yeah <laughs> yeah oh so, yeah all right so this pretty much concludes this halloween special episode i hope everyone that listened enjoyed it uh we will continue where we left off in our launch title season with the last game that we announced being Project Project Gotham Racing. Yeah, you say it. (laughs) (laughs) Project Gotham Racing. Hey, yes. Um, We've already played through this title. We just need to record the episode and uh, go over our final thoughts 
and get all of our ducks in a row really for preparation to release. So stay tuned for this episode to be very soon. All right. And as this game goes, being a nostalgic title, if uh, anyone has any kind of nostalgia or anything that they want to say about this game, if we missed anything, please let us know. You can write us in the comments or you can message us on any of our social platforms. And remember, you, the listener, make us great. We thank you very much for participating and for listening. We appreciate your ears. Until next time, I'm Excalibur. And I'm your co-host, Soft Mike. Wow. What? How'd that come out? I'm your co-host, Soft Mike. Oh, I said that with a smirk on my face. <laughs> like, I was like... It did not sound like, like, I was like you, like, Sounded well, like you I said it with an axe in your enthusiasm. back. <laughs> I, I said it like I was, like, looking like Fonzie saying, like, hey, like, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, yeah, I kind of, like, Elvis lipped. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying? It didn't work. <laughs> All right. And I'm your co-host, Soft Mike. Hey, and we will see you in the next one. Hello, loyal listeners. Excalibur here. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a supporter by going to our Patreon and pledging a couple bucks. Not only does this grant you exclusive access to early episodes and other content only available to supporters, but you also get to know you're making a difference by helping keep the lights on so that we can keep providing excellent content for you. Also consider joining the OG Xbox modding community on Facebook, where you can find anything you may need or want from the most trustworthy and quality forward bunch of innovators keeping this amazing console alive to today. You can also become a part of the action by submitting a game for us to review via five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may listen. Also consider liking and sharing our social media. You can find us on Twitter via our Twitter handle, ThinkBox Podcast, or on Facebook at Thinking Inside the Box. You can also write into us via email at thinkinginsidetheboxpodcast at outlook.com. Until the next time, thank you for listening, thank you for your patronage, and we will see you in the next one.